0: Listen for free on Spotify.
1: Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13.
2: New York, 1971. A pregnant young newlywed appears at the process church, asking to see her husband. She hasn't seen him in weeks, and their baby is due any day.
1: When the couple had first landed in New York, they were driven by two senior members of the church to a brownstone, where her husband was instructed to get out. Before she could follow, the car had sped away.
2: The senior members took her to another house and gave her a cot to sleep on. For days, she heard nothing from her husband.
1: Forbidden to call or write, the young newlywed begged for answers from fellow church members as the child inside her grew. Finally, her husband resurfaced a week before their baby was due.
2: Then the young woman learned the awful truth. Her husband had been with another woman the entire time, a high ranking member of the church called the Oracle.
1: The newlywed was stunned. Was this how all new members were treated? With infidelity sanctioned by their leader? She was crushed. She begged her husband to leave with her and their child, but there was little they could do.
2: They had already donated all their earthly possessions to their new church. There was no starting over, even if they wanted to. They were utterly trapped. Hi, I'm Greg Polson,
1: and I'm Vanessa Richardson,
2: and this is Cults, a Parcast original. Today, we're continuing our examination of the Process Church of the Final Judgment, a cult founded in 1965 by two ex Scientologists, Marianne and Robert de Grimsten.
1: At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and Twitter at Parcast Network. And
2: if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parkast.com merch for more information.
1: You can listen to previous episodes of Cults as well as all of Parkast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Last week, we focused on the lives of Mary Ann and Robert de Grimston, from their contrasting childhoods to their fateful meeting in the Church of Scientology, their psychotherapy group, their disastrous search for paradise, and their return to London in 1966. Finally, we covered their migration to the United States in 1967.
2: In this episode, we will turn our spotlight to the members of the Process Church of the Final Judgment. We will examine who they were and what became of the church after the Grimstons' marriage fell apart. The process church had been squatting in an abandoned salt factory in Stuhl, Mexico, until November 1966, when the factory was destroyed by Hurricane Inez. All but five members fled back to London, even more devoted to the church than they had been
1: when they left. A female process member said, quote, I remember coming back to England with a sense of invulnerability and power that, so helped me, I had never experienced in my life. I was convinced that it came from God. It was a bit feeling like Superwoman.
2: Many of her fellow members agreed. When they were starving in stool, God had washed up a fish. When they needed shelter, God had directed them to the salt factory. In the eyes of the church members, God had taken care of them completely.
1: According to author and sociologist William Sims Bainbridge, who researched the process after having been a member for several years, quote, the hypothesis that God existed and intervened in the process seemed confirmed by a number of experiences the cult had at this period.
2: Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the rest of the episode. Just a reminder, she's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show.
1: Thanks, Greg. The members of the Processed Church had given everything to the de grimstons Money, time, belongings. The sunken cost made it extremely hard for members to recognize the fact that their leaders were just guessing. That perhaps there was no divine plan. Instead, the members interpreted all trials and triumphs as messages from God. In a case of Pollyanna Syndrome gone wild.
2: For instance, surviving Hurricane Inez proved that God wanted them to tough it out in Mexico.
1: Instead, they took it as proof that God wanted them back in civilization, where they could share their knowledge with others. All but five members left Mexico. The five who stayed were determined to hold down the fort until the de Grimstons returned. Secretly, Marianne had no plan to do so, but their devotion gave her status, which she was never one to turn away, so she obliged them.
2: By 1967, the Process were back at the mansion at 2 Balfour Place in London. They needed money, so they opened a coffee shop in the basement. According to Timothy Wiley, one of the first Process members, it became quite the place to meet unusual characters who appeared to feel secure enough to let down their masks.
1: Those unusual characters included a meditation master named Chugam Trungpa Rinpoche, one of the first Tibetan Buddhists to start a European monastery, who held court with a group of devotees while intoxicated, Paul McCartney of the Beatles, and Marianne Faithfull, girlfriend of the Rolling Stones' lead singer Mick Jagger.
2: Wiley even became a shoulder for Beatles manager Brian Epstein to cry on. Epstein wept to Wiley about his business mistakes, his drug and gambling addictions, and his closeted homosexuality. Wiley later said that it was nice to feel like the two of them had some kind of value to one another.
1: The success of the basement coffee house also allowed the process to branch out into other areas. They taught classes, gave lectures, screened films, and held ceremonies. They also performed skits such as Great Priest meets Great Beast, where a member posing as the Pope debated another member posing as British occultist Alistair Crowley.
2: Yet despite the number of people who flocked to their coffeehouse and other process events, very few joined. The process's message of mankind's imminent doom didn't resonate with Londoners caught up in the exuberant summer of love. Wiley said, quote, we were changelings, misfits, mutants those rare few who had looked into the abyss and returned. We must have been terrifying.
1: What really set the process apart were their outfits. As rituals were invented, they adopted a uniform that consisted of black garb, knee-length capes, and standing collars. This invited further scorn from the press who labeled them Satanists and called them the mind-benders of Mayfair.
2: Marianne wholeheartedly embraced the controversy. She used it to help sell the church's new magazine, a two-color tabloid dubbed the Common Market. The magazine was purposely outlandish and tried to shock their readers. The first issue railed against England for joining the European economic community, comparing the EEC to the Book of Revelation's seven-headed beast.
1: These views only further isolated the process. Not that Marianne cared. From her perspective, critics were gray forces, steeped in their own mediocrity. The plebs who disagreed with or ridiculed the process likewise deserved scorn.
2: She loved hearing people were offended by the subject matter and happily thumbed her nose at authority.
1: As members took to the streets to sell their magazine, they quickly discovered the content mattered less than their approach. Wiley said, quote, if they liked you and you had high energy and a good spiel, they bought a magazine.
2: For potential new recruits, the magazine proved to be an excellent conversation starter. If a process member was able to convince someone to buy a magazine, they could persuade the buyer to visit the coffee house. If the buyer did visit, members could coerce the buyer into an empathetic session.
1: An empathetic session was not dissimilar to a therapy session, much like the sessions the process church had been conducting before they moved to Mexico. It was their major recruitment tool, based on techniques Marianne learned while she was a part of the Church of Scientology.
2: Yet, as the process made inroads with new members, the de Grimstons isolated themselves. Marianne, now called the Oracle, was the muse to Robert, the teacher. Together, they were the Omega. Robert preferred to write rather than socialize, producing thundering scriptures full of bizarre ideas about the gods the process church believed in and erudite theories on the meaning of life.
1: Once the basement coffee shop and magazine were lucrative enough to cover costs and the process members could fend for themselves, the de Grimstons took off on a tour to find a home for the church outside of England although Wiley later noted that it sounded more like a luxurious holiday for the de Grimstons rather than a fact-finding mission.
2: Robert and Marianne arrived in Athens, Greece on April 20th, 1967, the day before the government was overthrown. But they didn't let a little coup d'etat wreck their travel plans. They eventually made their way to Israel. They left just before the tensions between Israel and neighboring states erupted into the Six Day War. The de Grimstons reportedly heard gunfire as their boat left the Israeli
1: harbor. Robert felt these conflicts were somehow linked to the process. He believed that the coup and the Six Days War were proof that the process church was at the center of history. Repressive civilization was crashing down around them, leaving room for a new, truer religion.
2: This idea was reflected in Robert's writings, which were growing more apocalyptic. He produced several books and essays, which process members later printed on a Heidelberg press in the back of their coffee house.
1: While they were on their extended holiday, Marianne still found ways to micromanage from afar. She would call the cult to check in and make sure the five members she considered her inner circle were running things to her liking.
2: But under the de Grimston's remote guidance, a new culture emerged. At some point, the process started to believe their own hype. They were the chosen ones, and any real or perceived slight was met with swift condemnation.
1: Wiley personally attested to this. As the head of the art department, he was responsible for the magazine's graphics and layout. One month, he decided to feature Marianne Faithful on the cover of the magazine, and the issue yielded a decent number of sales. The DeGrimstons trusted Wiley to repeat this success with the next issue.
2: This time, Wiley put Mick Jagger on the front cover and bumped Robert to the inside back cover instead. The decision was purely economic. Wiley felt Jagger would further boost sales. But Marianne wasn't amused. She didn't like seeing another man on the cover of her magazine. She screamed to Wiley over the phone, Who do you think you are? You betrayed us all.
1: As punishment for his sacrilege, Marianne made Wiley sell all 50,000 copies of the Mick Jagger issue by himself. Then, fellow members who had initially approved of the cover turned on Wiley, saying it was all his idea.
2: But Wiley was determined to win back Marianne's good favor. He spent weeks pounding the pavement, hustling magazine subscriptions, and eventually sold every last copy.
1: Not only did this pull Wiley back into the fold, it helped the Grimstons realize what a cash cow they had on their hands. After that, selling the magazine was no longer on a volunteer basis. It was mandatory for all members.
2: And with their coffers refilled, the de Grimstons were able to continue their world tour, searching for a place where the processed church could flourish.
1: They found such a sanctuary in a city already well-known for eccentricity and niche religions, New Orleans, Louisiana.
2: Marianne, in particular, liked New Orleans, a place where outlandish behavior was a staple of the tourism culture.
1: The de Grimstons were quick to set up shop on Royal Street in the summer of 1967 in the heart of the French Quarter. Members began trickling over from London to join them. They brought their black uniforms and capes with them, which caused a stir with the locals.
2: As did their English accents and Marianne's six German Shepherd dogs. Much as they had in London, they set up a coffee shop on Royal Street and began pitching their beliefs over a cup of morning brew.
1: The Big Easy became a second home for the Process Church. Marianne even summoned the five followers who had stayed behind in Stull to Louisiana.
2: For the first time in several years, membership was growing again. Marianne and Robert felt renewed and began to develop plans that would take the church far past their two small chapters in New Orleans and London.
1: In a moment, the Process Church settles in to the Big Easy. Now, back to the show.
2: In the summer of 1967, Robert and Marianne de Grimston set up the newest chapter of the Process Church in a house on Royal Street in New Orleans, Louisiana. Soon, members from the London and Stuhl chapters joined them in the Big Easy.
1: As the Process membership grew, Robert's theories on theology grew along with it, his writings grew steadily more apocalyptic until he finally designed a mission statement that defined the process's goal.
2: The mission statement was inspired from the book of Revelation. In the fourth verse of the seventh chapter, it stated that 144,000 human souls would survive Armageddon.
1: The de Grimston stated that the 144,000 survivors would be 144,000 process members disseminated throughout the world. But to boost their numbers by 143,900 people, they needed to get busy recruiting.
2: A mission that proved to be as slow going as it had been in London. Hundreds of people reportedly visited the Royal Street chapter, but only six joined.
1: Because their church was split between New Orleans and London, they were spread thin financially. To help both their financial status and their recruiting tactics, the DeGrimstons filed for church incorporation on June 21, 1967.
2: As a recognized church, their panhandling was sanctioned as tax-exempt donations. It helped the church stay afloat and also laid out a clear path for where they would set up their next chapter houses, namely the cities that also recognized them as a state-sanctioned church.
1: The process found that the majority of their new recruits fell into one of three categories. Middle to upper class youth who valued a higher calling over finding a career. College students who were unhappy with their majors and uncertain about their life path. And finally, lost souls who craved a family.
2: Family was very important to Marianne. She chose members' new names and titles, which was their way of rejecting society's gray forces. If a recruit, also known as an outside procession, was promoted to the lowest rank of messenger, they would get a new name.
1: Later, senior members were given secret, sacred names uttered only in their ranks company. This was a fairly brilliant ploy on Marianne's part.
2: It created an environment of exclusivity for lower-level members to aspire to.
1: This is actually a move used in business to drive product sales, the fabrication of exclusivity. According to Rashawn Roberts with Business Insider, people will always want to be on the other side of the velvet rope. Sometimes this means fabricating exclusivity with needless wait lists or continually limited supply.
2: In this case, it meant making lower-level members jump through hoops before they could really belong.
1: Anyone who ever wanted to be a popular kid in high school will identify with the want to be part of the in-crowd. And that made many members work harder for Marianne's approval for much longer than they otherwise might have had they already felt like they fully belonged.
2: It wasn't the only method of control Marianne began exerting over her followers. Given her past as a sex worker, Marianne knew how to control others with their desires. So she and Robert created a system... Senior members were segregated into mothers and fathers. Newer members into daughters and sons.
1: Daughters and sons were advised to pick a father or mother as their spiritual parent to have sex with. Though the de Grimstons made it seem like they could choose, Wiley believes that Marianne had a strong guiding hand in the selections.
2: On the surface, these relationships were like marriages. The members were even given union ceremonies yet these unions were flexible. There was a situation where a female process member entered a union with her spiritual father, only for a younger male member to declare her his spiritual mother. The female member accepted both her spiritual father and spiritual son.
1: This resulted in an intimate six degrees of separation among the process members. Mary had an objective when she and Robert assumed control over their members' liaisons. According to American spirituality experts Diana Alstead and Joel Kramer, quote, To control a person sexually is to have control over a basic aspect of human life.
2: These intersecting relationships fostered a deep connection among members, encouraging them to remain in the church.
1: In addition, their dependence on the church was solidified by the fact that those who underwent the grueling number of tests and classes to join the process sold off their possessions as a show of commitment.
2: Of course, once officially in, there was little hope of advancement. Many of the process senior ranks had joined around 1968 at the latest. The members in the de Grimston's inner circle had been with the process since about 1965, Promotions for junior members were few and far between.
1: Consequently, the process lost a lot of members. However, leaving wasn't simple. Members who deserted had no right to the money they earned for the process, so they truly had to figure out a way to start from scratch.
2: One process member admitted to applying for jobs in secret. The second he was hired, he left the church.
1: And thankfully for those in the New Orleans chapter, Bourbon Street provided plenty of job opportunities for anyone who wanted out. The chapter's coffee house also introduced members to outsiders who could help them find temporary housing away from the process.
2: In February of 1968, the de suddenly shut down the Royal Street chapter. This was partly due to the fact that they were bleeding members. More importantly, the de were not in the United States on any kind of visa and soon found themselves dodging immigration services.
1: But rather than leave the U.S. altogether, they simply moved their membership to San Francisco. Robert de Grimston allegedly tried to form a union with Anton Zandor LeVay, who founded the Satanic Church in San Francisco in 1966. But LeVay dismissed the process church as kooks. After a month in San
2: Francisco, they moved to Los Angeles into a house at 407 Cole Street. They found their new neighborhood very accommodating towards cults. In particular, a young man who lived a few houses down.
1: His name was Charles Manson. But despite the welcoming atmosphere, the de Grimstens didn't stay long. The Los Angeles chapter shut its doors in May of 1968 and headed to New York City. 20 to 30 members shared a top floor loft with over 20 German shepherds.
2: It's unclear whether Marianne and Robert were still looking for a city where they hoped the processed church would flourish, or if they were just dodging deportation. Either way, they never planned to stay in New York for that long.
1: It was supposed to be a brief stopover as members sold magazines to fund their return trip to England. The process eventually amassed enough for two dozen members to board an ocean liner bound for London.
2: But when they arrived, the majority were denied entry to the country. The British government had enacted a policy to bar non-citizens who wanted to join the Church of Scientology from entry. Because the de Grimstons were former Scientologists, the government likely wrote off the process as a splinter group. Stranded process members made their way to Amsterdam instead. A chapter formed there, but folded quickly.
1: The members moved to Hamburg, Germany in the fall of 1968. The de Grimstons moved to nearby Omaramagau, Germany. They were moved by the city's beauty and wanted to set up a chapter there, but they were ultimately forced to move again as they didn't have enough cash to set up shop.
2: Marianne said that signs from God indicated that they should go to Italy. She had also heard that Catholic monasteries were available to cheaply rent. Yet the places the de Grimstons wanted were either too pricey or they would have to share with a Catholic order. Apparently God wanted the de Grimstons in Italy, just not near any of his other religions.
1: The process had hit rock bottom. Members were scattered all over Europe. The de Grimstens were squatting in a rat-infested hotel. But Christmas was coming soon, and the church got word that a few members had settled in Rome. So the couple decreed the process should reunite in the Eternal City at the end of 1968.
2: In Rome, process members had rented a large house for surprisingly little money, It proved to be a good setup, and Marianne felt the church could camp out there for a while.
1: The de Grimstons stayed in a separate apartment and got to work summoning the members that had been scattered to the winds, as well as recruiting new members.
2: By January of 1969, they needed another apartment to provide lodgings for the influx of members and recruits.
1: But immigration restrictions and finances proved to be a challenge in Italy, too. Likely for these reasons, the Rome chapter closed in the spring of 1969. Most of the process went back to London, where they may have been unpopular, but were at least allowed to live and work.
2: Around this time, the process shifted into a matriarchal society. Male members couldn't argue with their female counterparts, who were able to pull rank. Marianne designated female deputies to quiz members on Robert's logics a set of speeches and tracts that expounded upon process theology.
1: Members had to know the logics verbatim and were subjected to excessive tests they had to pass with perfect scores every time. At this stage, the hierarchy mirrored Marianne's tyrannical attitude. According to Timothy Wiley, quote, her autocratic management style frequently reflected among the lower ranks in the poor way many of them were treated and in turn were treating others.
2: The stressful part about life as a junior process member was the unpredictability. Members were transferred between chapters, often with little advance notice. They were in no position to protest. A member described the situation thusly, I don't decide what I'm going to do. That's decided for me. And it's a relief.
1: Those who flocked to the process had done so amid turbulent times in their lives. So, handing control over to the de Grimstons felt like a load off their shoulders. According to Diana Alstead and Joel Kramer, authors of the Guru Papers, Masks of Authoritarian Powers, quote, Often a large component of spiritual seeking is the desire for a place of no conflict, where a benign, all-powerful intelligence is taking care of things. The
2: de Grimstons, however, were hands-off outside of telling the process where to move next and imposing odd rules. They were much more interested in growing their cult and supporting their lifestyle.
1: But the future of the group would be called into question in the summer of 1969. Their old Los Angeles neighbor, Charles Manson, would make international headlines for the Tate-LaBianca murders.
2: As rumors about the Manson family spread, many noted his close proximity to the Process Church when it had been in Los Angeles and wondered whether Manson was actually a lapsed Process member.
1: Both the Manson family and the Process borrowed from the Book of Revelation and preached of an Armageddon that would spare only a chosen few. Both groups also referred to themselves as family. The similarities made many potential members run from the Process Church, despite the fact that Marianne had no interest in murder.
2: Members of the process had little experience dealing with the press and routinely put their feet in their mouths while defending the process church. In 1971, the Boston chapter director unwisely said, quote, if we had the opportunity to speak to Manson, we could have avoided that series of very brutal killings.
1: The rumors were further inflamed when The Process published their magazine's Death Issue, featuring Manson on the cover and including an article penned by Manson from jail. They saw this as a way of taking control of their narrative, but the public was widely offended. It was a public relations disaster that left The Process open for attack.
2: To counteract the bad press, the Grimstons instituted a wardrobe change. Gone was their signature black. Their new uniforms were now light gray. With a family-friendly appearance, the de Grimstons reasoned that casual observers couldn't confuse them with Charles Manson.
1: But the uniforms did little to squelch the outlandish hearsay. The process was accused of ritual animal sacrifices with reports of slaughtered stray dogs and cattle remains found across the United States. Other rumors concerned child sacrifices and new recruits being forced into orgies.
2: Granted, the process was secretive about certain practices, so it's hard to definitively dispel these rumors. But Marianne was an avid dog lover. It's unlikely she would advocate for animal sacrifices. A female ex-member once mused, The dogs were fed much better than we were.
1: The only rumor that did have some truth to it was that of the orgies. Granted, only senior members engaged in orgies, and only under Marianne's direction. She partnered them up.
2: This was supposed to free their sexual inhibitions, but proved traumatic for participants. These orgies often resulted in the birth of unwanted children, who would unfortunately be left unattended, filthy, and in
1: cramped quarters. Outside of the orgies, the other rumors persisted. At the end of 1971, writer Ed Sanders published magazine articles and a book that took the process church to task. Sanders directly linked them to the horrors of the Manson family and described the process as, quote, an English occult society dedicated to observing and aiding the end of the world by stirring up murder, violence, and chaos. The
2: process filed a libel suit. They sought $1,250,000 for Sanders' articles and $1,500,000 for his book. Meanwhile, the process attempted damage control. Their uniforms were now a fashionable, cheerful blue. They also did charity outreach, providing free hot meals and secondhand clothing to the homeless.
1: The charity work helped a little to restore their image, and on March 8, 1972, Sanders' American publisher settled out of court with the process. As per the settlement terms, the American publisher removed all references to the process from future editions of Sanders' book. An official statement from the publisher absolved the process of any alleged connection with Charles Manson.
2: Marianne decided to forego compensation. The court victory was the only reward she needed. The process still had a pending libel case against Sanders' English publishers, but Marianne didn't let that bother her. For the first time since Stuhl, it seemed as though the Process Church was on the upswing.
1: No one would have guessed that in just a few short years, the entire cult would explode.
2: In a moment, the straw that would break the Process Church now, the conclusion of our story.
1: After their victory in a libel suit in March of 1972, the Process Church seemed headed in the right direction. However, in the year that followed, 39-year-old Robert de Grimston plunged into a deep depression.
2: 43-year-old Marianne and the other senior Process members saw his behavior as increasingly unpredictable, and Marianne started to assume more control of the church.
1: At the same time, she prepared for their libel case with Ed Sanders Publishing Company in England.
2: It's unclear whether it was due to nerves or overconfidence, but the De Grimstons didn't appear in court and sent their inner circle in their stead
1: which turned out to be a huge mistake. In March of 1974, the process lost their libel case against the English publisher and were ordered to pay an undisclosed amount of court fees.
2: This loss added pressure to the already strained de Grimston's marriage. As it turns out, during Robert's time of depression, he had taken a protege under his wing named Morgana. She had joined the church initially in 1967, deserted for a few months, and then returned. At some point, she moved in with the de and the relationship between mentor and protege turned sexual.
1: Marianne reportedly encouraged Robert and Morgana's sexual relationship at first. That is, until they developed feelings for each other.
2: On March 23, 1974, Robert was removed from office. On March 26th, two senior members approached Robert to relinquish his right to process-related properties. On March 27th, Robert left for Mexico with $1,000 and Morgana.
1: The process was left in a state of uncertainty following Robert's departure. Marianne completely eradicated Robert from the church. His pictures and writing were excised after the May of 1974 issue of The Process magazine.
2: To further remove themselves from Robert, the process rebranded, first as the Foundation Church of the Millennium, later as the Foundation Faith of the Millennium.
1: Robert, meanwhile, wanted to restart the process. After Mexico, he and Morgana returned to New Orleans and tried to set up shop, but it was ultimately a bust. They couldn't recruit members.
2: However, members in other cities had reached out to Robert. They wanted his guidance. So on July 27, 1974, Robert flew to New York City and hung out with two dozen ex-members at Washington Square Park.
1: They never officially discussed reforming, yet the turnout was hopeful. Later, Robert met with an Egyptian ex-member from Boston who went by the alias Brother Osiris.
2: A spiritual aficionado, Brother Osiris's energy reinvigorated Robert. After several phone calls, the two men decided to relaunch the process in Boston. It was a practical solution. The process church had many ex-members in Beantown, left adrift after Marianne closed the Boston chapter.
1: Plus, having no competition from Marianne and what was now called the foundation meant a fresh start for the process. Robert arrived in Boston on October 5, 1974, and stayed with Brother Osiris and his family.
2: He quickly learned that the ex-members were divided into two camps. One camp still felt a strong connection with the process. The other camp had parted with the process on bad terms.
1: But Robert was determined to win them over. He promised things would change.
2: Through these meetings, a plan surfaced. They would rent a place together, and the new Boston chapter of the process would emerge. They found a house in Waltham, Massachusetts, that had been divided into four apartments. It was perfect. They compiled a list of those interested in moving to Waltham.
1: Yet, in order to afford the rent, only those who had jobs or were employable were selected for the move. Many potential members left over the rule. Those who remained amassed just enough cash for two of the four apartments.
2: They moved in at the start of November of 1974 and began the process again.
1: Shortly thereafter, some of the ex-members who had been previously rejected from the apartment list somehow scraped enough cash together to rent a third unit.
2: But despite their best efforts, the process redux was a confused mess. There was no official hierarchy. Robert was a teacher, but not a leader. Additionally, there was the issue of money. When originally formed, members were mostly middle class and brought together through therapy sessions. Now, those with money were given clear preferential treatment over those without, creating a caste system that irked many of the members.
1: The initial plan was to save up so they could leave civilization for a remote area of the United States, set up a center, and lead missions into urban areas. ex members saw themselves as the future priests of the process. However, no one seemed to know where the new center would be
2: suggestions ranged from new mexico to somewhere in the midwest robert didn't seem in any hurry to make a decision he claimed that this was because he was waiting for god to show him the way but more than likely he wasn't used to making the decisions and found the responsibility overwhelming robert deferred decisions to brother osiris who many assumed was their new leader
1: as might have been expected his plans never advanced beyond the development stage The group lived with Brother Osiris until his wife tired of sharing her house with Robert and Morgana and kicked them out.
2: Things weren't going well for Robert, and he knew it. At some point in late 1974, Robert met with Marianne in New York, where she had been living. They hadn't seen each other since March.
1: Robert had hoped for a reconciliation, but their volatile seven-hour meeting nixed the idea. He spent the next 2 months finally extricating himself from Marianne, which wasn't easy.
2: She forced him to negotiate for copies of his own writing. In a letter, Robert wrote, quote, "Over 11 years, I estimate the income of the process to be close to $5 million, which was made possible by my contribution."
1: Yet despite this declaration, Robert demanded only $50,000 from the foundation. His reasons for undercutting himself remain unknown. After the months of back and forth, Marianne and Robert officially divorced in January of 1975.
2: And if Robert thought he was having a tough time with Marianne, the foundation members were in for a rude shock. In the wake of the divorce, Marianne grew completely unchecked. According to Thomas Wiley, quote, as extreme as she was when partnered with Robert, alone, she soon became. A monster.
1: Back in New York, Marianne was determined to make the foundation a booming success. She wanted a new, fancy facility and set her sights on a large studio complex owned by fashion photographer Bert Stein. She bought the complex for $900,000. Responsibility for the huge monthly mortgage payments fell on to foundation members.
2: In addition to the studio, Marianne constantly demanded money from foundation members, who relied on selling magazines. Wiley said, quote, We had to face the almost overwhelming fact of having to raise something in the region of $60,000 a month. The mortgage alone was $40,000.
1: Budgetary constrictions forced the Foundation to scale back from magazines to newsletters. Eventually, the Foundation rented out space in the complex for various endeavors to pay off their debt. And while Foundation members dealt with Marianne's insatiable greed, the 25 members of Robert's Process Redux desperately tried to stay solvent.
2: Only two Process members were able to hold down jobs. A few tried to start their own businesses to little avail. They put together a magazine from previous process periodicals. Their sales goal was $2,000. Instead, they made around $200. Process Redux members begged for food from strangers. When they didn't beg, they shoplifted and broke into cars.
1: Tensions mounted as bills piled up. Members made plans that fell apart. Some maintained their misfortunes were a test. Others felt this was the end. Even Robert conceded it was a disaster.
2: But there was hope yet. Eight former members living in Toronto reached out. They revealed that they had maintained their own informal chapter in a large house on
1: Ontario Street. Robert took it as a sign that he was meant to continue his organization. On February 14, 1975, Robert moved in. Morgana and five others from Waltham joined Robert a few weeks later on March 2nd.
2: Robert believed his failure to assert his authority was the reason the process redux imploded in Boston. He vowed not to repeat that mistake in Toronto. He started with full participation in the Toronto chapter's activities.
1: Robert also created a new rule to preemptively thwart any efforts to oust him. Specifically, he wrote, Robert de Grimston is the teacher. He cannot be removed from office. He sits on the board of directors. He is entitled to veto any resolution of the board.
2: But in his efforts to maintain control, he fell to the opposite extreme. He showed blatant favoritism to the Waltham members over the Toronto members. As a rivalry blossomed, the situation on Ontario Street grew tense.
1: In his heart of hearts, Robert wanted to leave. But ever the teacher, he looked for signs to justify his departure. He found one.
2: Morgana, an impulsive thrill seeker, started an affair with another member. No one was more blindsided than Robert. Morgana had been his rock since his divorce from
1: Marianne. Robert said that it was significant that Morgana strayed near the one-year anniversary of his being expelled from the process when it was still run by Marianne. This year, he would expel himself.
2: He moved out of the house in Toronto and into the home of a former member. Allegedly, Robert sat in a corner and refused to eat for three days. Broken and alone, he pondered aloud, "'Where the hell do I go from here?'
1: On March 25th, 1975, the last remnants of the process broke up.
2: By 1976, Mary's sect, the foundation, was no longer a church. All its chapters had closed, except the one in New York. The studio complex had become a catch-all convention center that catered to multiple kinds of mystical beliefs for the right price. The foundation's most popular attractions were psychic fairs.
1: Acupuncturists, astrologers, Buddhists, fortune tellers, hypnotists, and countless others were featured at the psychic fairs, which swiftly became a novelty. Yet despite adopting various mystical iconography and beliefs, the foundation was committed only to Marianne.
2: The Psychic Fair's success allowed Foundation members to branch out into other avenues, such as radio shows, televised appearances, and seminars. Additionally, their magazine, now called The Founders, enjoyed a print run of 200,000 copies.
1: Yet none of this pleased Marianne. She was a materialistic narcissist who held herself beyond reproach, which Foundation members supported. According to authors Alstead and Kramer, Quote, adulation, the ultimate form of special treatment, has an addictive quality difficult to resist.
2: Adulation permitted Marianne to get away with her unscrupulous behavior, which members either disregarded or excused. Thomas Wiley later admitted to compartmentalizing parts of Marianne that he disliked and training himself to focus on her brilliances.
1: Wiley felt he and his fellow members had created a monster. He said, quote, Perhaps Marianne thought she'd finally become the goddess, the identity we had so long projected onto her.
2: Marianne thought the foundation should solely focus on ministry. When she ordered all other activities to cease, members were split. Their ministry wasn't as profitable as the other activities, and they worried about falling back into the same financial problems they'd suffered before. So Marianne consulted with Wiley then director of the foundation's New York headquarters.
1: Wiley suggested she separate the ministry and other activities and allow both to coincide with her leading the ministry and he leading the rest. But Marianne took this as an attack on her leadership.
2: The foundation was split in two. Marianne's supporters were the purists, Wiley's were the universalists. After several failed meetings, about 15 members, including two of Marianne's inner circle, deserted in 1977.
1: A small group, including Wiley, rented an apartment in Manhattan's Central Park West. They called themselves The Unit, an independent subordinate to the foundation. But the group barely made it a year. They couldn't salvage the past.
2: Neither could Robert. In 1979, he abandoned his final attempts to restart the process. He eventually reunited with Morgana and the couple moved to Staten Island, New York. The former cult leader and his disciple settled for relatively normal office careers.
1: Wiley tried to maintain contact with Robert, but their friendship had changed. Though Wiley lived in Staten Island for over a decade, he had dinner with Robert only twice. Both times were disastrous. There was simply too much history between them to ever really reconcile.
2: Meanwhile, the foundation couldn't survive on their ministry alone. Mary Ann and her remaining followers left New York and finally settled in Kanab, Utah in 1982. They dropped their ministry altogether and underwent one final metamorphosis in 1993
1: out of the ashes of the foundation, emerged Best Friends Animal Sanctuary, a no-kill shelter. The change felt right, as many members were passionate about animals. One said, quote, we were all feeling that it was time to devote ourselves to that true passion.
2: Marianne and Wiley kept in touch via letters. And in her final years, Wiley visited her property in Utah. Her home evoked ancient Egyptian architecture, When asked about the design, Marianne confessed, I wanted it to look like a tomb.
1: Marianne reportedly died on November 14, 2005, at the age of 74. The cause of death remains unknown. However, a rumor claims wild dogs tore out her throat.
2: Best Friends Animal Sanctuary thrives in her wake. Known today as Best Friends Animal Society, It's one of the United States' largest animal welfare groups, providing shelter to over 1,600 homeless cats and dogs.
1: It seems an incredible journey for two former Scientologists to create a church that took them from a second-story, cramped office in London to Mexico to almost every major U.S. city and across Europe, only to fizzle down to a single animal shelter in Utah.
2: They didn't change the world as they had set out to do. But to quote Robert de Grimston, we had a hell of an adventure trying.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday.
2: Some of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy Cults, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. You can find Cults and all of ParCast's shows on Spotify or on your favorite podcast directory.
1: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
2: We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Cults is written by Simone Fornelier and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.